Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Mint Mobile. For those of you who hate their phone bills and are ready to cut the ties with big wireless, Mint Mobile has a new wireless plan just for you. It's only $15 a month and you can get the plan shipped to your door for free. Just go to mintmobile.com gold. I'd also like to welcome a brand new sponsor to the Peter Schiff Show podcast, Mac Weldon. Mack Weldon is a premium men's essential brand that believes in smart design as well as high quality fabrics. And right now you can get 20% off on your first order. Just visit MacWeldon.com gold and enter the promo code gold. Yesterday it was the first Friday of November. And so that means we got the October non-farm payroll report, otherwise known as the jobs report. And the expectation was for 450,000 jobs added during the month. And that would have been a big improvement to the prior month because in September, we were told that 194,000 jobs were created. And that was way below what the market had anticipated for the month. So not only did the October number come out well ahead of consensus, we got 531,000 jobs added, so 81,000 more than estimated. But we actually went back and upwardly revised the last two months, including the September report, which went from 194,000 initially reported to 312,000. So that is a significant revision as was the revision to the previous month. And in fact, the unemployment rate actually dropped more than expected. It was 4.8% in September. They thought it would drop to 4.7. Instead, it dropped down to 4.6%. So that part of the report also strong. Looking at private sector payrolls, a big beat there. They were expecting 400,000 new private sector jobs created instead 604,000 204,000 more than expected basically a 50% beat they even upwardly revised the prior month from 317,000 to 365,000 even manufacturing saw a pretty big increase the expectation was for 29,000 jobs we more than doubled that we got 60,000 jobs And they even notched up September 
from 26,000 to 31,000. So overall, it was a strong report. The markets reacted to it. All of the media coverage focused on the strength of this jobs report. Of course, there were little pockets of weakness. Labor force participation was supposed to increase to 61.8%. Instead, it remained at 61.6%. So we're not getting a lot of people going back to the workforce. They're content not to work for whatever reason. Either they're living off of government money or they're day trading the stock market or cryptocurrencies and they figure that's all they need to do because they're making so much money so easily. Average hourly earnings were expected to be up 0.4 and that's exactly what happened. Although the year over year number was a little bit higher. They were looking for 4.8. The prior month was 4.6. Instead, we got a 4.9% increase in average hourly earnings year over year. That is a big number. Of course, it's not as big as the inflation number. Prices continue to outstrip wage gains. So even though workers are being paid more, they're actually earning less. And in fact, they worked a little less too. Average hourly hours worked notched down from 34.8% the prior month to 34.7%. But not only did the markets love this number, and I'll talk about that later, but President Biden wasted little time in bragging about the numbers and claiming credit for the job creation during his press conference. Although I really shouldn't call what the president gave Friday morning a press conference because, you know, the most important part of a press conference is the conference, right? And the conference is basically a discussion. See, the reason that politicians call a press conference is it's got a twofold purpose. The first part of the press conference is you make a major announcement, some new policy, or you tell the reporters who have gathered for this conference some new information that they didn't necessarily have. But then the second part, and really the more important part, is where the members of the press who have gathered for this conference, they get to ask questions about what you just said. Right, you announce some new policy, and of course, people have questions. And the general public, you know, they don't get to ask the questions. So the members of the press are there basically representing the people, and they're given an opportunity to question the president about this new announcement or about this new policy. And even President Biden, when he was giving what he claimed was a press conference, He referred to it as a press conference. But the problem was, after Joe Biden made his speech, he walked out the door and left without taking a single question from any of the reporters who had gathered in the room. So what is the point of calling a press conference if you're not going to conference? Why bring all these reporters into a room? You know, especially With COVID out there, you know, the president makes a big deal about we have to not spread COVID. Well, why have all these reporters come into this small room? What if one of them has COVID and spreads it to some of the other reporters? Or what if the reporters catch it, right? This is an opportunity to spread or catch COVID. What is the point 
if you're not going to actually accept any questions. If all you're going to do is make a speech, then make a speech. The president can stay alone in the Oval Office and just read from his teleprompter and make a speech. I mean, sometimes presidents make speeches and sometimes they call press conferences. You don't need to call a press conference if your goal is to make a speech. But what Biden wants to do is create the false impression that he is delivering press conferences. So this is all show. You gather all these reporters together and you pretend that you're giving a press conference like other presidents, like President Trump gave press conferences all the time. And so Biden wants to give a press conference, but he doesn't want to actually have to answer any questions from the press. And why is it that the president of the United States refuses to answer questions from the press? Well, because I think he knows that he can't answer them or his handlers know that he can't answer them. And so he's just making a speech and leaving. And that is very telling when the leader of the free world doesn't even have the aptitude, right? doesn't even have the ability to answer any questions about what he's just said. And I don't know why the reporters, I guess, continue to participate in this farce. Although, yes, most of these reporters, probably all of these reporters are Democrats. And so they want to participate in the charade because they want to make the president appear presidential. They want him to look good. So they don't want to call out the absurdity of what they're participating in. So they're just playing along with the game so that we can pretend that we have an actual president when we just have a puppet and we have no idea who's actually pulling the strings. But let me get to what the president actually discussed during this speech, which was marketed or masqueraded to be a press conference. Well, he wanted to take credit for the jobs in what he called a historically strong recovery, right? This is a great recovery. He bragged about all the job creation. In fact, he talked about record job creation, that there's a record number of new jobs, that the unemployment rate has fallen by a record amount, and he's comparing what's happened to job creation and unemployment during his presidency, or this far, how many months into his presidency, and comparing it to prior presidents and bragging about how much stronger the economy is on his watch than it was under the watches of any prior presidents. And it's all because of his bold economic policies. When, of course, the only reason that so many jobs have been created since Biden has been elected is because so many were destroyed right before he was elected. And it wasn't really that they were destroyed. They were temporarily put on hold. So the jobs weren't really gone. The workers just were told to stay home. It was kind of like a pause, right? But after Biden was elected, those jobs came back. They weren't created. They were restored. The jobs were actually here before Biden was elected. It's just that we temporarily asked the workers not to show up. And so then we reopen the economy and the workers who we had sidelined come back onto the field. And now Biden wants to pretend 
that these are brand new jobs that were created by his policies. This is nonsense. And the drop in the unemployment rate, it's the same thing. Businesses closed down because of the pandemic. They sent their workers home. They were unemployed. Pandemic is over. Businesses reopen. They recall their workers who they had basically furloughed. Now the unemployment rate drops. This is not because of Joe Biden. The reality is, but for the policies of Joe Biden, even more jobs would have been restored. The unemployment rate might be even lower. So his policies are actually weakening the economy as he is claiming credit for strengthening it. He also claimed that our economy is the end of the world, right? That we've got the fastest growing economy and all the other countries are jealous of how great our economy is doing. This is again, complete nonsense. I'm going to go over some of the other economic data that the president completely ignored during this phony press conference because that data reveals the phony nature of the bubble economy over which Biden is presiding and it exposes the underlying weakness of what is being heralded as a strong economy. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by the big wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after speaking with them and learning about their service, it all made sense. There isn't a catch. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. And by cutting out the retail stores, there's no crazy overhead costs that get passed on to you. Instead, Mint Mobile just passes on those sweet savings directly to you. So if you're looking for some extra savings, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless as low as 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan, and you can keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. In fact, when the time came to set my son Preston up with his first mobile phone, Mint Mobile was the ideal choice for me. To make it the ideal choice for you and pay just 15 bucks a month for wireless, you can get the plan shipped directly to your door for free. Just go to mintmobile.com gold. That's mintmobile.com gold. Cut your wireless bills down to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com gold. But where Biden really waded into the deep end of the BS pool was when he started talking about the inflation pressures on the economy and how they all just result from the supply shortages and the reopening. But he laid out his solution for inflation. And his solution is to pass his Build Back Better bill. And I'm going to discuss that later in the podcast, but the president is claiming that the best way to get rid of these bottlenecks and these surprise shortages is to spend more money on his infrastructure program and his Build Back Better program. And this 
additional government spending is what's going to increase the supply of goods, open up the supply chain, declog these bottlenecks, and that's going to bring down consumer prices is this big increase in government spending. And in fact, you have a lot of Democrats, in particular AOC, making this same ridiculous argument that the way to reduce inflation, the way to bring down prices is to pass these big government spending programs that somehow are going to result in an increase in the supply of goods and services. The opposite is, in fact, going to take place. If we pass or when we pass the president's bills, the Federal Reserve is going to have to print trillions and trillions of additional dollars to pay for all this spending. Inflation is the result of the money the Fed is printing to cover the cost of the deficit spending that already exists. So if we're asking the Fed to monetize even larger deficits, they're going to have to print even more money. And so they're throwing gasoline on a inflationary fire. So rather than putting out the fire, as Biden and AOC suggests, it's just going to make it burn hotter. And the idea that all of this government spending is going to result in a more productive economy, again, is complete nonsense because government spending never does that. Government spending reduces the overall output of the economy because the government simply spends money that the private sector no longer has. The government ends up taking resources away from the private sector and diverting them to public sector use. Any resources left in the public sector will by definition be used more efficiently and more productively than those same resources that are redirected to government because government is not driven by the profit motive and therefore they have no reason to maximize the output of their inputs. They are motivated purely by politics, the desire to spend money, not make money. So there is no efficient allocation of resources. And so overall, the economy becomes less productive. But also, if you think about the nature of the infrastructure bill, means the government is going to be procuring all sorts of resources, assets, raw material in order to construct whatever it's building. Well, that's simply going to add additional upward pressure to the prices of everything the government is buying. So the idea that all this extra demand from government to buy stuff is going to result in lower prices of the stuff the government is buying stands economics on its head. Obviously, the president's bills are highly inflationary and they're going to make a inflation problem that's already bad much worse. Of course, when the president was bragging about this historic recovery and how strong the economy was, he didn't talk about surging budget deficits. He didn't talk about record trade deficits. All of these factors belie the comments that we have this great booming economy. Because if we really had this booming economy, 
The budget deficits would be coming down as a result of the strong economy. The trade deficits would be coming down as a result of the strong economy. Goods prices would be coming down because the strong economy would be so productive. We'd have all sorts of goods and services being created and produced, which would be weighing down their prices. Everybody would have a rising standard of living. And of course, if we really had the strongest recovery ever, we have the fastest job creation ever. Would the Fed still be at 0% interest rates? Would Powell have just said at his press conference? And of course, Powell actually took questions at his press conference. So at least when the chairman of the Federal Reserve has a conference, it's an actual conference. They take questions, even if they're mostly softball questions. And even if the audience is pre-screened, so there are no real legitimate questions that challenge Powell, at least he's going through the motions. I mean, they could have at least done that. I mean, it's not like Biden was facing a hostile audience when he was sitting there in front of members of the press. It's not like Peter Schiff was in the audience there who was going to ask him a real question that would have been very difficult for him to respond to. They were all going to give him softballs, but this president is so incompetent, they know he can't even hit a softball. Even if it's pitched right to him perfectly, right the way he likes it, he's going to strike out. And so they had to make sure that no questions were asked. But if the economy were that strong, rates would not be at zero. Powell would not have said that it would be inappropriate to raise interest rates. And the Fed would not still be doing quantitative easing. Even if it is tapering, it is still supplying the economy with massive monetary stimulus, which obviously would not be needed if we really had a strong economy. The reason it's needed, in quotes, is because the economy isn't strong. And so Biden should stop taking credit for a strong economy that is effectively on life support from the Federal Reserve. Mack Weldon is a premium men's essential brand that believes in smart designs as well as high quality fabrics. So if you're looking to save some time on deciding what to wear, Mack Weldon has a solution for you with their new daily wear system. The daily wear system has clothes made with performance fabrics and smart design. This includes breathable t-shirts and polos, stylish button-ups and shorts, underwear, and more. Mack Weldon makes it easy to dress for any occasion, whether it be work, leisure, or play. In fact, I recently placed my first order for some Mack Weldon products. The online shopping experience was a breeze. They had plenty of good products to choose from and lots of very positive reviews to validate the quality of the clothing based on the feedback from the satisfied customers who had purchased in the past. So to get 20% off on your first order, Visit MacWeldon.com slash gold and enter the promo code gold. That's MacWeldon.com slash gold using the promo code gold to get 20% off. MacWeldon, radically efficient wardrobing. Now, the markets responded very positively to the news. The U.S. stock markets, all of the four major indexes, the Dow Jones, S&P 500, NASDAQ, Russell 2000, not only were they all higher on the day, but all four hit new all-time record highs. And in fact, if you look at the stock market and look at the chart, there's really nothing but blue skies ahead because we're in uncharted territory. You've got record highs 
in stock prices, new lows in the VIX, volatility is falling, prices are rising, everything is great. And I think the reason that the stock market or the investors like the situation so much, it's not because the economy is booming as the president claims, but because the Fed has promised to continue the stimulus indefinitely, even though they're going to be tapering, they did leave the door open to tapering the taper if the data turns, but Powell has reassured everybody that interest rates are locked at zero for the foreseeable future, potentially indefinitely, and that's exactly what the market wants to hear because as long as interest rates are not going up and they're going to stay at zero and money is free, well, then there's no price too high for the stock market. Of course, not every stock was up. You did have your debacle du jour. The big loser of the day was Peloton. Peloton was down about 35% in one day, and this followed a worse-than-expected earnings report that came out Thursday after the close. And I just want to talk a little bit about this particular stock to highlight again the risks of chasing momentum and ignoring valuation because Peloton was one of the poster boy stay-at-home stocks that everybody loved to buy because it was the perfect COVID stock. And I talked about this and the risks that investors were assuming by piling into this story stock. During the pandemic, at the very beginning, people were at home and all the gyms were closed. And so people who were at home and couldn't leave the house even, I mean, it was like you couldn't go anywhere. Forget about a gym. I mean, everybody was just staying in their home. How do you exercise? Well, Peloton bikes, right? That made a lot of sense. And the company had just recently gone public. They had all kinds of cash and they spent a ton of money advertising these bikes, right? In fact, they were spending so much money advertising the bikes that they were losing money, but they were generating a lot of sales. And one of the reasons that people had money to buy these expensive bikes was A, they had access to credit, right? They could buy now and pay later or whatever. They used their credit cards or other kind of promotional deals. And B, a lot of people got checks from the government. And so some of the people took their stimulus checks and said, hey, I'll use it to buy a Peloton bike. So you had a situation where you had a temporary spike in demand for these bikes. And I remember at the time saying, look, this is not going to sustain itself. And in fact, a lot of these bikes are just going to end up being expensive clothes racks because people are going to end up throwing their clothes on their bikes instead of using them. And everybody's always excited about a new piece of workout equipment when you first get it. But then after a period of time, I mean, people just stop working out. That's like, you know, people join gyms and nobody goes. I mean, that's why these gyms are able to sell so many memberships because they know that the members are going to stop using the gym. I mean, maybe when it's New Year's resolution, they resolve to get back in shape and they run out and they join a gym. The gyms know that most of the people that join are not going to show up. Well, a lot of people buy these bikes. They're not going to use them. But I was saying at the time that it was ridiculous to believe that this temporary spike, especially when the company was advertising so heavily, that it would be sustainable. Yet investors didn't care because it wasn't about fundamentals. Peloton was going up and so people bought it. And the more people that bought it, the more the price went up, 
that validated the decisions of the people who bought it. And then they bought more and everybody piles in and you get a momentum stock. Well, eventually the momentum breaks. And in fact, Peloton stopped going up a while ago. And so it was kind of going sideways until the news caused the stock to crash. The high for the year for Peloton was $171 a share. Now it's at $55. That is a huge move down. But the problem is it could still continue to fall a lot because they're still losing money. And the question is, at what level of sales will this company be profitable? And then what will it be worth? Because the momentum is clearly busted on this stock. And so I think now the buyers are going to have to be legitimate investors who are looking to buy value because you can't buy momentum in a stock that no longer has it. In fact, the momentum owners are going to go. I mean, a lot of them sold Friday, but I'm sure more of them are going to sell. Maybe some people thought, God, I can't sell today. It's down 35%. Let me wait for a bounce and then I'll sell. I bet there's a lot of people waiting for this stock to bounce so they can dump it. Well, maybe it won't bounce. Maybe it'll just dump again. But this again highlights the risks involved when you just buy these story stocks, meme stocks. Eventually, fundamentals return. And that's going to happen with all of these overpriced stocks. And it's going to happen in spades with cryptocurrencies. It's the same dynamic. Fundamentals don't matter. People are just buying. In fact, I listened in on this Twitter conference, I guess is what you would call it. It was a talk. Michael Saylor, a few other people were hosting this live Twitter event. Now, I joined it and I was raising my hand. I was trying to get them to invite me to say something. But of course, they didn't want me screwing up their crypto love fest. I've been trying to get Michael Saylor to engage me in some type of public debate for months. Lots of people have invited us, have raised their hands saying that they're willing to host the debate, but Saylor will not take anybody up on the offer. But I was listening to all this conversation. And again, this guy was off the deep end in the stuff he was saying about Bitcoin, you know, how Bitcoin represents hope, right? I mean, Bitcoin is hope. They kept talking about it as if it was hope. And that's like one of the few things that I sort of agree with. It is hope. When you buy Bitcoin, you have to hope it goes up. You have to hope a bunch of fools don't come to their senses, right? You have to hope that the people who don't own Bitcoin buy it. You got to hope that the people who do own it don't sell it. I mean, the only thing you get when you buy Bitcoin is hope because you don't get anything real. There is no actual value to the token or any of the tokens. It's all hope because it's all hype. But the stupidest thing that Saylor actually said was not about Bitcoin. It was about gold. What Michael Saylor said was his prediction is that gold is going to zero. And he said that anybody who is buying Bitcoin and gold is a fool because they shouldn't be buying any gold at all. That there's no point in even having a small allocation of gold, that gold is totally worthless and Bitcoin has made it obsolete and that gold is going to zero. It seems that Michael Saylor is confusing gold for Bitcoin. See, it's Bitcoin that's going to go to zero, not gold. I mean, why would gold go to zero? Even if Bitcoin succeeds, why does gold have to fail? I mean, certainly gold has been a valuable, precious metal for 
thousands of years. Gold was very valuable before it became money. Even if it was demonetized by Bitcoin, why should it be worthless? Like people are going to walk around and if they look down and there's a bar of gold on the street, they're just going to keep on walking and not even bother to pick it up because it doesn't even have value as a paperweight. It's completely worthless. Gold is the most useful metal on the periodic table. It will always have value. It will never be worthless. Even if Bitcoin succeeds, gold does not fail. But you know, this just shows you how irrational these Bitcoin proponents are to the extent that they think gold is going to zero. And one of the things that Michael Saylor said to convince the people listening on Twitter, and there were thousands and thousands of people that were listening, I forget how many, but he said that gold is down over the last year, that gold is down over the last 10 years, and that therefore it is not an inflation hedge. It has proven that it's not an inflation hedge because it is down over the last 10 years or the last year. That is a very subjective time frame to pick because if you go over the last 20 years, Gold went from under 300 to 1800 where it is now. That's a six-fold increase. Sounds like an inflation hedge to me. In fact, if you go back a few years ago, gold was at 1050 in 2015. So it's up 80% almost in the last five years. Sounds like a pretty good inflation hedge over that time frame. What Michael Saylor likes to do is cherry pick the timeframes during which gold went down and contrast that to Bitcoin to prove that Bitcoin is the real safe haven inflation hedge and that gold is now obsolete. The reality is Bitcoin is not going up because it's an inflation hedge. Bitcoin is going up for the same reason that Peloton went up. It went up because fools are buying it and overpaying for it. It is part of the bubble. It is correlated with the meme stocks and the NASDAQ. It's got nothing to do with gold, got nothing to do with safety, got nothing to do with a hedge. It's a speculation. It's about getting rich. In fact, on that Twitter call, people were talking about million-dollar Bitcoin. Michael Saylor was talking about multi-million-dollar Bitcoin per coin. Nothing that can go up to that degree can be considered a store of value or a safe haven. Safe havens don't do that. And at the same time, Michael Saylor was praising the U.S. dollar too, saying, oh, the dollar is still going to be the reserve currency. The dollar is going to be the most important stable coin, but Bitcoin is going to be the reserve asset. I don't know. It didn't even make any sense that he loves the dollar so much, yet he thinks Bitcoin is going to be worth so many dollars. The only way Bitcoin could ever be a million dollars would be if we had hyperinflation and for some reason Bitcoin didn't crash. But you're not going to have the dollar maintaining its purchasing with Bitcoin being millions of dollars a coin. It's not even possible mathematically for Bitcoin to be that valuable if the dollar is still that valuable. There's not enough stuff to buy. There's not enough purchasing power. It doesn't make any sense. But nothing about the arguments for Bitcoin or any of these coins make any sense. It's all a bunch of hype. And again, when you buy these coins, you better hope that reality never sets in. But of course, it always does, just like it did for Peloton. And Peloton probably isn't finished going down, but investors in that stock were not willing to ignore reality indefinitely. And the same thing is going to happen 
uh, with Bitcoin and the hodlers. There's only so much BS that the market can handle. And eventually, reality is going to set in and everything is going to come crashing down. But while I'm talking about gold, right, the metal that Michael Saylor was trashing, gold actually had a very good day on Friday, in contrast to Bitcoin, which actually dropped on Friday. In fact, as I'm recording this podcast on Saturday morning, Bitcoin has dropped a little further. It's now trading at 60,700, back below 61,000. So Bitcoin is having a difficult time making new highs. We'll see how much longer it can hold above 60,000. But while Bitcoin is having a hard time holding these gains, gold appears to be finally breaking out. Gold was up $26 on Friday. It closed at $1,818, finally closing above $1,800 on a weekly basis. Silver also strong up $0.38, cents, $24.15. But what's more significant to me than this $26 increase in the price of gold is the fact that gold went up despite what was universally received as a strong jobs report. Because if you go back over the prior months, over the last several years, every time we have had a strong jobs report, gold has been clobbered. Some of the biggest down days that gold has had this year have all occurred on days where a stronger than expected jobs report was released. A lot of times gold would drop 20, 30, 40, even $50 following a stronger than expected jobs report. Why? Because signs of a strong economy mean the Fed is going to be tighter, right? They're going to raise rates sooner. They're going to taper bigger. So gold has been very nervous about the jobs numbers. In fact, some of the biggest gains for gold have been on those days where the job report was weak. So the job report has been the biggest market-moving event for the gold market. The gold market seems to ignore a lot of other relevant economic data points and it really focuses on jobs. Now another one is, you know, usually consumer spending or consumer confidence, but other numbers that are seen as somehow motivating the Fed and influencing its decision on how easy to be or when to potentially taper or maybe lift off on rates. Well, the fact that we got a stronger than expected jobs report And that gold not only didn't go down, but actually had a pretty solid day, $26 gain, closing above $1,800, a level where it's had a very difficult time. Every time gold has gone above $1,800 in recent weeks, it's been immediately smashed back down. Now, not only do we sustain that level, but we close well above it, not only on a daily basis, but on a weekly basis. And this is also significant because as I mentioned on my last podcast on Wednesday, when the Fed announced the taper, gold didn't drop on that either. I mean, gold was down on the day, but that's because it was down before the Fed decision came out. And in fact, gold actually paired its losses after we got the news that the Fed was going to start to taper. So I said at that time, to me, that was a very positive sign by the rumor sell the fact that all the selling regarding the taper had happened and that the taper had been fully priced in 
to the gold market. And Friday's action is more confirmation because now we got a strong jobs number and gold just shrugged it off and went higher. So if gold didn't go down on the taper, if gold didn't go down on the strong jobs report, when will gold go down? It probably won't because it probably means the sellers are gone. The people who are looking to sell the taper, they've already sold. The people who want to sell strong jobs reports, they've already sold. So all we have left are buyers. We don't have a lot of sellers. The fundamental case for gold has never been stronger. And so gold's going a lot higher. And of course, as gold goes higher and higher, it's going to make it more difficult for guys like Michael Saylor to sell the public on the idea that gold is irrelevant and it's no longer an inflation hedge once it really starts to move up. And at some point, it's going to be beating Bitcoin. And you're going to start to see the price of Bitcoin not only going down in terms of dollars, but going down even faster in terms of gold. And that's going to be a big marketing problem for Bitcoin. And as I said many, many times, gold may end up being the pin that pricks the Bitcoin bubble. Also, another part of the Bitcoin hype has to do with these newly elected mayors of both Miami and New York City. Because I'm reading these news stories now that both of these mayors are going to accept paychecks in Bitcoin. Not that they're going to denominate their salaries in Bitcoin. They're not going to work for Bitcoin. But what they're saying is that they will take one paycheck. I think the mayor of New York said three because the Miami mayor said he's going to take his next paycheck or his first paycheck or something in Bitcoin. And then the mayor of New York City wanted to one-up him and said, well, I'll take three paychecks in Bitcoin. And the Bitcoin community is touting this as some type of evidence or proof that you see Bitcoin is money, it's a unit of exchange. Here you have politicians, they're willing to be paid in Bitcoin. They're not being paid in Bitcoin, they're being paid in dollars. They're just having their salary converted to Bitcoin. Of course, the minute they get the Bitcoin, they're gonna sell the Bitcoin for dollars because if the mayors wanna pay their rent, their landlords don't want Bitcoin. They wanna go to the grocery store and buy food well, the grocer doesn't want Bitcoin. This is all for show. This is all theater. These are politicians pandering to the Bitcoin community. They're pandering to the Bitcoin whales. They know that by coming out and helping spread this propaganda, A, they're going to get campaign donations from the Bitcoin whales. There's a lot of money in Bitcoin and the politicians go where the money is, right? Why does Willie Sutton rob banks? because that's where the money is. Well, right now the money is in crypto and politicians want to get their hands on it. And so they've got to kiss butt to the crypto people. But also the mayors want these crypto related industries to open up in their cities. Why not? They pay taxes, they create jobs. So all these mayors want to kowtow to the crypto community because they're hoping that by being crypto friendly, the crypto businesses will end up locating in those communities. In fact, all of these other big institutions that are putting their toe in the Bitcoin water, a lot of people are trying to spin that as meaning, you see, they are adopting Bitcoin. This is proving that it's becoming more mainstream, more institutions believe in it. They're getting involved in it. Look, they don't believe in anything except making money and they don't want to get in Bitcoin, they want to get in on the action that surrounds Bitcoin. Look, there's a lot of money that is being made now servicing the Bitcoin bubble. And Wall Street 
wants in on it. They want their slice, their piece of the action. They don't want to sit back and watch other firms make money. They want to make money. It doesn't matter if the customers ultimately lose money in Bitcoin. All the people who are buying it lose a bunch of money because between now and then, a lot of money will be made in servicing the bubble. A lot of money could be made regarding IPOs, financings for companies that are involved in the bubble. But again, all of this is malinvestment. All of this will come back to bite Miami and New York City to the extent that a lot of Bitcoin companies end up setting up shop there because that just means eventually more bankruptcies in those cities when the bubble goes bust. More people will lose their jobs. More office space will be vacant. So you live by the bubble, you die by the bubble. But don't be confused by Wall Street's willingness to get in on this action or politicians pandering to the Bitcoin community as some type of endorsement that this nonsense is going to work. It's not going to work. The whole thing is a mania and all of this news is just being spun by the promoters because their goal is to get the price up to sucker in new buyers so they can sell. I want to get to some other economic data that came out on Thursday and Friday that, of course, didn't get nearly as much attention as the jobs number. On Thursday, we got the trade deficit, the unified trade deficit in goods and services for September, and it blew away the estimate. It is another all-time record high, $80.9 billion deficit in one month. That's a sharp increase from the slightly downwardly revised $72.8 billion deficit the month before. In fact, if you look at the internals, it makes the report even weaker. Exports decline down by 3% to $207.6 billion. Goods exports really plunged down 4.7% to $142.7 billion. On the other side of the ledger, Imports surged by 0.6% to a new all-time record high, $288.5 billion. Goods imports rising by 0.8 to $240.9 billion. That is a record high. We've never imported more goods than we're importing right now. We also set a new record in capital goods imports as well as non-petroleum imports. Now, bear in mind, everybody is talking about how we have a shortage of goods. Meanwhile, we've never imported more goods than we're importing right now. Wouldn't that suggest that the problem isn't that we don't have enough goods when the trade deficits have never been this high? We have more goods coming into the country than ever before. So the problem isn't that we don't have enough stuff. The problem is we have too much money to buy this stuff. The Fed is supplying all that money. And the problem is we're not making this stuff because our exports are falling. So to the extent that there are shortages of stuff, it's not because foreigners aren't producing this stuff. They are. They can't even get it over here because we don't have enough ship space. I mean, they're sending us record amounts of cargo now, but there's more cargo queued up. So there's plenty of supply. The problem is we don't have supply domestically. It's the domestic production. We're not exporting because we're not producing. So that's where the supply shortages are. They're in America. The whole world is suffering from COVID, 
But why is it just America that has this problem? Because clearly the rest of the world is able to produce stuff because they're shipping record amounts of stuff to America. It's the United States that's having a production problem. So our economy is not booming. Our economy is not the envy of the world. Our economy is being propped up, being supported by the stronger economies outside the United States that are producing the stuff that we're consuming. The problem is we're printing so much money, everybody wants to buy stuff, but people aren't helping to make stuff, and that is the problem. But another part of the problem was revealed when we got the productivity numbers for the third quarter. And the consensus was for a drop of 1.5%. We actually had improved productivity in the second quarter, and that was actually revised upward from up 2.1 to 2.4. But what we got for the third quarter was a shocker. Productivity plunged by 5%. I'm not sure when the last time that happened, but that is a huge drop in quarterly productivity. And the culprit is surging unit labor costs. They rose 1.1% in Q2, They were supposed to rise 5.3% in Q3, which would have been a pretty big number, except the actual number was 8.3% increase in unit labor cost. And so that is what is causing productivity to collapse is surging labor costs. So if the Federal Reserve is hanging its hat on the fact that we're not going to have inflation because we don't have it in wages, Obviously, this report belies that assumption, 8.3%. And of course, if Biden wants to brag about rising wages, it's all nominal. The only way that wages go up in real terms is if you have more productivity. Well, clearly, we don't have rising productivity. We have collapsing productivity. So real wages can't go up. They're going to fall. And in fact, If people are counting on rising productivity, that's the argument that Kathy Wood is making that, well, we're going to have deflation. We don't have to worry about inflation because rising productivity is going to save us. Productivity is collapsing. In fact, this is going to make the problem worse. We're printing more money as productivity in the real economy is going down. So instead of offsetting the effects that inflation has on prices, falling productivity is going to augment those effects. So the inflation is going to get even worse, not better. Then also on Friday, we got consumer credit for September. The market expected consumer credit to grow by 15.5 billion dollars. It grew by nearly double that amount, 29.9 billion dollars, a big surge in credit card debt, record debt for automobiles and student loans, again revealing the weakness that underlies the U.S. economy. Where are Americans getting money? They're borrowing it. I mean, sure, they're getting some money directly from the government, but the stimulus checks aren't coming right now, new big ones. The savings have been depleted, most likely, and now they're reaching for credit and they're borrowing to buy stuff. And what are they buying? They're buying imports. We know that from the trade figures. And again, based on how much money is now being borrowed, we know that these record trade deficits are going to get bigger and bigger. I mean, I've said that every time on this podcast where I have talked about a new record high for the trade deficit 
every time I do that, I say, well, the record's going to get broken next month. And then that's exactly what happens. We're just shattering one record after another. We set a record and then we break the record. But these are not records that you want to break. This is bad news. Trade deficits are a bad thing and they're a sign of a weak economy. And it means that a dollar crisis is coming. It's just a question of when are all of these trade deficits, all of these budget deficits going to finally weigh on the dollar? When do we get the straw that breaks this camel's back? I mean, the evidence seems to be all around us that the inflation is finally showing up in consumer goods in a way that is extremely problematic for the economy and the Fed. And there's only so much longer we can be in denial that inflation is transitory or that it's somehow a good thing or the result of a strong economy. Look at oil prices. I mean, oil prices had pulled back. A lot of people got excited when oil went back below $80 a barrel, but it surged $2.36 on Friday, closing back above 81, 81.17. I think the oil chart looks great. And again, one of the reasons that we're not going to get any relief is we're not going to get the extra production. Look at the Baker Hughes rig count again. Unchanged for another week. Oil surges above $80 a barrel and the rig count in North America, which was 710 the week before, is 710 now. There is no new drilling going on despite the fact that the price of oil is going up. In the past, when you had a big surge in oil prices, oil companies would rush to get more oil out of the ground to take advantage of it. That is not happening right now. So higher prices are not going to cure higher prices because the only way that happens is if it leads to more supply. But that's not what's happening. Finally, though, I want to point out on my last podcast, I said that I thought the results of the elections on Tuesday, the very close gubernatorial race in New Jersey, where the Democrat almost lost, and that would have been a real shocker. The race was much closer than expected. And the other race in Virginia, where the Democrat did lose, I said that this was going to put a lot of pressure on the Democrats to deliver on the infrastructure bill, on the Build Back Better bill, that they were going to coalesce and pass something so they would have something to show the voters in the midterm elections. Otherwise, they were going to go down in flames. And it looks like that prediction was right. Yesterday, the House finally got together and they are sending the $1.2 trillion total infrastructure bill to the president's desk for signature. So it will be signed and that bill will pass. They are also now making progress on the Build Back Better bill. It is down to $1.75 trillion, but that bill has now passed the House. It has to go on to the Senate. Remember, the infrastructure bill passed the Senate first. The reason the Build Back Better bill has to originate in the House is because it is a revenue bill, because there are tax increases embedded in that bill. And based on the Constitution, and this is one of the rare instances where the government actually follows the Constitution, but all revenue bills must originate in the House of Representatives because the founding fathers thought that the House would be less likely to want to tax the public because they're more beholden to the public. They're elected every two years. So they thought the the House would be less likely to want to raise taxes than the Senate. And so they wanted those tax bills to have to originate in the House of Representatives. And so that's what's going on here. 
But they did pass it. For now, they did stick in the paid family and medical leave. I think it's down to four weeks, but this will be a massive boondoggle if it's ultimately included. I know Joe Manchin had said that he doesn't want it, so maybe the Senate will pull it out. We'll see, but it's in the House version, and it is one of the bills that will cost way more than they planned because every single American will end up taking four weeks off with pay. It's not just going to be for emergencies. Everybody will have an emergency. You'll invent an emergency because people want paid vacations. I mean, I don't blame them. If you have the opportunity to get four weeks off with pay, you'll take it. If you have to pretend there's an emergency, will you pretend? I mean, how many people lied on their mortgages when they wanted to buy a house, right? People have no problem lying. How many people lie to the government to get unemployment benefits? They lie all the time when there's a government benefit to be had. So, in fact, I think a lot of people will feel pressure to lie about their emergency because their friends will be doing it. I mean, you're going to feel like a complete sucker if you're the only one going to work and everybody else is taking a paid vacation. So that will be a big disaster if it's in there. But also, as I said, the increase in the salt cap is there. I think now they're going to raise the limit where you can deduct up to 10000 of your local property income taxes. I think they raised it to 70 or 80,000 per year. So for most people, you're going to fully restore the SALT deductions. I'm not even sure that there's a net increase in revenue as a result of the tax hikes. They may be offset by tax cuts. So the pay-fors might actually need to be paid for themselves because this actually may be a tax cut and not a tax hike. The only tax hike is the surcharge on millionaires, which is a 5% extra tax rate on incomes above 10 million and an extra 3%, so 8% if you make more than 25 million. Since it's a surcharge, it would also apply to capital gains. So it effectively increases the capital gains rate. So if you happen to fall into this category, your top rate is going to be 48.8%. And the way I got that too is I had to add in the 3.8% Medicare tax, which is now going to apply across the board to all of your income. So that is another tax hike. So the top rate on people that earn $25 million or more in a combination of earned income and capital gains is going to move up from 37% to 48.8%. That's a pretty big increase the capital gains tax rate is basically going to go from 23.8% to 31.8%. Again, a big increase. My feeling is, though, that a lot of Americans who have that kind of income will choose not to realize those capital gains because that wealth tax, that tax on unrealized gains, did not pass. And the reality is, the higher the capital gains tax rate is, the more reluctant people are to actually realize a capital gain, what people will do is continue to borrow against their appreciated assets rather than selling those assets and incurring a tax. If interest rates are going to stay at zero, which they will, and stock prices are going to go up indefinitely, why ever sell and pay a huge capital gains tax when you can simply borrow at very low rates of interest 
and all the stocks that you didn't sell keep on going up, which enables you to borrow even more, which is why I don't think the government is going to realize a lot of additional tax revenue from these higher rates, but they are going to lose revenue from reinstalling those SALT deductions for a lot of people, which is why this thing might be a net loser. Yes, there is a 15% corporate minimum tax, but I don't think that's going to raise that much money. The overall corporate tax is going to stay at 21%. So that's not going up at all. They are going to have a 1% excise tax on corporate buybacks. That's not going to do anything. I mean, 1%. I mean, that's just like an extra 1% interest on the money you're borrowing to finance your buyback, but only for the first year. I mean, companies are not going to be deterred from borrowing money to do buybacks if they only have to pay an extra 1% to do it for the first year, companies were doing buybacks when interest rates were higher than they are right now. So that'll raise a little revenue because it's not going to deter buybacks. I think the government will get some revenue, but at a 1%, that's not that much money. But when you think about the new effective top rates, when you combine the state and local taxes, California has a 13.3% tax rate. So that means the top marginal tax rate in California for earned income is going up to 62.1%. Capital gains will be 45.1%, making California the highest taxed place in the country. New York will be in second place because the combined rate, if you live in New York City rather, because the state income tax rate is 882 but the city imposes its own tax. And when you add them together, you get 12.7%. That means people living in New York City will have an effective tax rate if they're earning more than $25 million of 61.5%. The capital gains tax will be 44.5%. Hawaii, 59.8 for ordinary income, 42.8 cap gains. New Jersey, 59.5% ordinary income. 42.5% cap gains. And you know what? Those rates are going higher because the deficits are going to get bigger. These tax rates will not really result in much added revenue. So they're going to have to keep on raising them. But if you think about that, if people in California are looking at a 45% tax, if they realize capital gains, why would they realize any capital gains? They won't. They'll continue to borrow money. Same thing in New York, same thing in Hawaii. In fact, it's possible that these new higher taxes on capital gains will actually result in less revenue to the government because people who have capital gains will be even less likely to realize those gains at the higher rate. And so even though the capital gains tax rate is higher, the revenue to the government will be lower because you alter behavior based on your rate. Just like the government, when it subsidizes something, it gets more of it. When it taxes something, it gets less of it. So the higher you tax or the more you tax capital gains, the less capital gains people choose to realize. So whenever the government spends money, they spend more than they think, like they will for paid family leave. But when they raise taxes, they get less revenue than they think. Because again, those people who are being taxed will do what they can to avoid it. The only thing that the government is trying to do as part of this bill is there still is supposedly extra money in there to generate more revenue from auditing the rich. But again, auditing the rich is the ruse. The IRS wants more 
money and they want more auditors not to go after the rich, but to go after the middle class because that's where the majority of the tax evasion is taking place. The rich don't have to evade taxes. They've got plenty of legal ways to avoid taxes. It's the poor working stiff, the guy that's working for wages or a self-employed businessman, they have no way to take advantage of these legal loopholes. So the only way they can survive is to cheat on their taxes. And the IRS knows that. And that's really where they're going. But they're never going to get public support for more IRS agents if they admit that their target is the middle class. So they fool the middle class. They pretend they're going after the rich and they're actually going after average people. And again, that's why I always say never get in bed with the government. No matter how much they try to sweet talk you, the minute you do it, you're the one that ends up getting screwed. 